Welcome to New Hope Church's teaching series podcast. We're in the third week of our series, Luke's Gospel, The Great Reversal. We will journey to Easter by exploring Jesus through the eyes of Luke. Luke presents Jesus as someone who turns everything and everyone upside down and inside out. We cannot encounter Jesus and stay the same. Pastor John Rosenstiel will lead this morning's teaching, and our scripture reading is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, January 16th, 2022. All right. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Uh, it's been said you, you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Have you heard that, that line before? I think it's true. I did some uh, I, I did some research on first impressions, and it was shocking that most of us make first impressions of one another within four seconds. Within four seconds, you size up another person and determine the type of individual they are. This is scientific study after study after study shows that seventy percent of Americans said that they determine who someone is and the type of person they are before they ever speak. So I, I wanna help us here, more than spiritually, just help us in our first impressions. And so a couple of things when we approach someone that, that, that studies have shown is like when we see if someone's dressed well, then immediately we think that they're wealthy. That's a pretty easy one, probably. When you uh, make good eye contact with someone, they think that you're extra intelligent. Suddenly everybody today is gonna make really good eye contact all day. When you speak quickly, then people think that you're competent, that you're, you're good at what you do. When you, uh, when you have many piercings, so if you have a lot of holes in your body that you've put there, then people think that you're creative, but maybe not that intelligent. I'm just, no offense, I'm not saying this is how you are, I'm just telling you this is a, if you have a baby face, kind of a more of a rounded face, people think that you're more trustworthy. If you have a lot of tattoos on your body, and no shame there, tattoos are fine, but this is just first impressions, then people think that you're not reliable. My, uh, I, I'm, I'm horrible at first impressions. It's something I've worked at my entire life. Maybe you are nodding, because when you first met me, you, you had a bad impression of me. I don't know. My wife always tells me when she first met me, she could not stand me. She thought I was a jerk. And so after 20 plus years of marriage, she's starting to come around a little bit. She's, she sees the good, good parts in me. I, uh, I, again, wanting to help all of us, I was like, okay, what if we make such quick knee-jerk snap judgments of one another, and science says that we do again and again and again, what are ways we can help one another? So I started Googling, like, what, what gives a good first impression? And it was off the charts, the number one thing you can do when you meet someone. Remember, you've got four seconds. Within four seconds, someone's sizing you up. The number one thing you can do, you might be able to guess, is smile, which is really difficult with a mask on, isn't it? It's really hard to do it. But you can see like a smile work its way up into somebody's eyes usually. But once we're in a non-mask world, remember that, smiling. And the second one is good smell. You wanna smell good. The opposite is true. If you smell bad, that's the number one thing that you can, uh, when you introduce yourself to somebody and they smell and you smell bad, they get a bad impression of you. So here's the deal. If you wanna have a good impression, smile and shower and wear deodorant. That's it. I just saved like a ton of first dates right there. We're gonna look at a story today from Luke chapter two. 
that is all about first impressions. And if you know Luke at all, Luke chapter 2 is the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 20. Even if you come to church twice a year, you've bound to hear the Christmas story again and again and again. Now, you may say, John, we just had Christmas. Why are we going at it again? Now, this gets me on a little bit of a pet peeve, so I'm just going to rant for like two minutes max, I promise. So my pet peeve is this. So we're, we're part of a Christian calendar. It's about 1,500 years old. And so there's seasons. So you may have heard of Lent or Advent or Easter. These are all seasonal things that followers of Jesus across the world and throughout history as a rhythm every year celebrate to remind us and train us to be disciples of Jesus. So Advent, which we practice here, we think Advent and Christmas are the same time. That is not true. Here's my pet peeve. Advent works all the way up to Christmas Eve, and then on the night of Christmas Eve, usually after you light your candles and sing Silent Night, the season of Christmas Tide starts. Have you ever heard that name, Christmas Tide? This is a real deal. And it goes for 12 days. Those are the 12 days of Christmas. Did you guys know this, or am I teaching you? Did you, you guys know this? And you, typically, a lot of times you give a present each day and stuff like that. Well, American Christians, Western Christians, tend to start Christmas the day after Thanksgiving. And then it just breaks my heart when the day after Christmas or two days after, people are cutting their trees down and leaving them on the front. It just breaks my heart. It's killing me, Adam. It just really is. And so, it just, and so no shame if that was you this year, but don't do it again. All right, so you got like, this is a training, like Christmas tide, it's awesome. So my point being, a lot of like, especially Eastern uh, Christians, they celebrate Christmas tide all the way up to this Sunday, which is traditionally the Sunday you celebrate Jesus' baptism. So anyway, just a little side thing, just a little pet peeve. So we're gonna go at Christmas today, Luke 2, you probably know the passage well. And we're, we're in a series called The Great Reversal from the book of Luke. We're in the third uh, uh, um, message from that series. And we've been talking about how Luke the evangelist, Luke the eyewitness uh, choreographer of Jesus' life, the historian, he's putting together this gospel eyewitness that, that talks about this great reversal. Again and again and again and again, Jesus is turning things inside out, everything and everyone, upside down. What we think to be true, the opposite's true. That's kind of what we're watching happen. And in Luke 1, we have the two characters, Zechariah, the male priest, who the angel comes, he doesn't respond with faith, and then he gets, he gets uh, put aside. He has to take a seat on the bench where he enters into this quiet stillness. And we argue that we need quiet stillness in a noisy world to hear God, and he did. And he, he was able to reestablish connection with God. And then we have young Mary, like 14, and she gets the same visit and she responds with faith. And I argued last week that Mary is a model of faithfulness, that Luke is putting her at the very beginning of his gospel saying, and this is a great reversal, it's not the male priest, it's the young teenage woman who is the model of what it looks like to be faithful disciple of Jesus. So that's kind of where we are in the story. And now we're coming in. If you know any part of Luke, you probably know this. Now, April's gonna come in just a second. I'm gonna pray and she's gonna read Luke 2, 1 through 20. And when April gets done, she'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And then you say, wow, it's like a C minus. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be a hard judge, but like, you know. So she says, this is the word of the Lord. And you say, I'm trying, I'm trying. So let me pray. And then we'll, we'll give you a real shot. God, thanks for your, for your faithfulness. Thanks for the presence and power of your spirit uh, here with us. Thank you that we gather, even though we can't see it right now, we gather with brothers and sisters all over this city that you love so dearly, uh, all over the state, all over this country, all over the world, in different places, in different locations. Uh, 
different backgrounds, different skin colors, different personalities, different vocations, different cultures, all your church. And uh, we want to keep them in mind. They're our brothers and sisters. We're going to do life with them for all of eternity. So we gather in spirit with them this morning. But we're also blessed to gather with one another, our church, our little local expression of the body of Christ. Uh, So thank you for that privilege. We pray you'd animate us with your spirit. We pray as April reads your words, that your words would sink deep into our hearts, God, and have their way with us, shape us, inform us, and make us more like your son, Jesus, of which we read. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. So this is a reading from Luke 12, 1 through 20. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went also went up from the town to Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went through, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned and glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so first impressions matter. That's what we've established. And this is our first impression of God incarnate. People often ask me, what is is God like? People desperately want to know that. And if we get that wrong, we get a lot wrong. Well, I think a simple response from Scripture is that God is like Jesus. Jesus is is the, the exact representation of God, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So this is our first impression of Jesus. I think instead of just kind of, you know, reading this nice cute story and moving on, we look at it as a first impression. From this first impression, what can we learn of God? So let's get into the text a little bit. I will just spend a little bit of time here. Uh, 
Luke positions us within a historical context. Again, this is not fiction Luke is writing. Luke tells us this is the time of Caesar Augustus. He says there's some type of census that's going on that causes Mary and Joseph to leave their town of Nazareth, where they're at, and travel to Bethlehem, which is close uh, to Jerusalem. Th this is a central language that Luke uses. He's being very intentional. He says Bethlehem was the town of David and that Joseph was of the line of David. He wants his readers to know that because those are prophetic markers for the Messiah, for this one who had been promised in Israel's waiting, who would come and be their savior and redeem them. These are two of the attributes they're to be looking for. The, the, the Messiah would come from the town of David and from the line of David. Uh, so that's really essential. Luke wants to hone us in there. The journey last week, we put up a map. I think another one's coming up that, that Mary traveled last week to visit Elizabeth. Very similar journey. This time she's nine months pregnant, though, so if, if that's ever been you, you know the difference in that. It's a different experience. Traditionally, we picture Mary traveling on a donkey all that way, about 70, 80 miles, probably took three or four days. Luke mentions no donkey, so I don't know what to tell you about that. Maybe there's a donkey, maybe there wasn't. Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. We talked about last week in this context in first century Judaism, you got betrothed. So your families would have a marital contract and Mary's maybe around 14 years old. So we're in the middle of that marital contract. Um, that's why the message last week was so startling to her and she had to navigate that because they had not had sex. Luke is clear on that. And yet here they are traveling nine months later as a man and a woman, and he still tells us they were pledged to be married. Now, scholars think that, that they probably got married They probably because they wouldn't be allowed to travel together if they were still in that betrothal period. So they're probably married, but he's using that language to tell us they've not consummated that relationship yet. Um, Mary, Mary, why would Mary even go on a journey this rigorous? Uh, there had to be necessity for Joseph to be in Bethlehem. He must have had to be there at a certain time. And of course, uh, he didn't want to miss uh, the birth of, of Jesus. Verse 7 is one of Luke's most well-known lines. Jesus was born wrapped in cloths or swaddling clothes, some translations say, laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I, when I hear that line, I just picture Charlie Brown Christmas. Anybody else? Like Linus saying that, right? It's such a great reading. Uh, but that's, again, it, of the lines you may know from Luke's gospel, that's one of them because we hear them a lot. So let me do a little, a little uh, Christmas myth busting. Would that be okay? Because I think we have some things in our mind that aren't always accurate, and that's okay. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with God's words. It's usually what we bring to the text. So this would be one of them. So we've learned a lot about how things operate in a first century Palestinian village. Archaeology has unearthed homes. We know how they were built, and we know their design. So this is the myth that I think a lot of us, we grew up believing. Mary and Joseph, they make this long trek. It's arduous. They roll into Bethlehem like late at night, and you know all the holiday inns in, in town have no vacancy signs. And then they all have like angry innkeepers that are like, get back, no room for you in the inn. And so they stumble out to the outskirts of town and find this dilapidated stable, which they, they hole up in and Jesus is born, right? Is that kind of, that's kind of the mentality we have. Well, most of that's wrong. So we just like, just correct that. And we can see that in the language. We can, we can know that from the archeology. span Most towns, and these are really small little villages. Um, they're not gonna have like a holiday inn. They, you know, we don't have any evidence of that. There were those kind of public houses of hospitality that you paid to stay in. Bethlehem was probably not large enough to have one of those. 
So we, we have to think that Mary and Joseph, they're going to kind of their hometown, if you will, where Joseph from, they had relatives. They probably had, had people to stay with. Hospitality was a huge thing, especially among family. Maybe they did get in late. Most town or most uh, first century village homes were designed, I think we've got a, a picture coming up, like this. And so you have like a, a, a family living room, and then maybe if you're wealthy, wealthy air quote, you have maybe a guest room, but attached, if, if, if it's a one floor house, attached to it, kind of like it's all one deal, is, is the stable and the animals, all part of one deal. And, and in the family living room, you can kind of just reach over and feed the animals. Well, is that kind of deal? Really low wall. Now, some homes would look like this. Here's another picture. Um, they would have the living quarters on top and uh, the animals down below, but maybe even often down below was their guest room or extra living space. So this is kind of, we know this. We find these homes everywhere. Uh, there weren't too many stables just out in the field, which is our, our idea. And Luke uses this term. If you use the NIV, the Greek term, a lot of times it was, it was traditionally translated in. Now the NIV translated it as guest room. There's no guest room for them. So here's what we think happened. They roll in. They've got family connections. They go to that home. Maybe there's other families there for this census. And they're packed in. And there's just no room. If they did have a guest room, that's already filled by maybe two other families. And even though uh, Mary's pregnant, yeah, we want to give you housing for the night. Here's the best spot in this corporate family living room. And there's the sheep right there. There's the animals just right beside them. And they were thankful. They were grateful. They were, that, that was fine with them. So there's, uh, there's Christmas myth busting. How, how are we doing with that? Is, am I just destroying nativity sets all over America right now? Just like crushing dreams. Um, it's the same idea, though. It's, I thought of when I was uh, thinking through this, I thought of the movie Christmas Vacation. You guys ever watch that? Like when all the relatives come over and there's just no room for anybody. We've all been there, right? Mary and Joseph got the pull-out couch in the living room. That's a way to think about it, right? It wasn't a horrible deal. They had a place to stay, but it probably was somewhat exposed to the weather. And the animals were right there. And Luke never uses the word stable. He does use the word manger. And I think we have a picture of a, a first century manger coming up. And those would have been just on the other side of this living quarter. So it happens. Jesus is born. And they got this squirrely baby, you know, moving around. They need some place for the baby to sleep so mom and dad can rest. And, well, that looks perfect. So Joseph's just cleaning that thing up and getting the hay out and putting baby Jesus in him. That's kind of how it happened. Are we doing okay? Am I just crushing dreams? You guys look really disappointed. All right. So that's I just want to be honest with you. So we move on to the shepherds. The shepherds were nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. Here's a picture today. If you go outside modern-day Bethlehem, there's this field, and it's known as Shepherd's Field. So we can assume uh, they were hanging out in maybe this particular field. You can go there today and see it. Uh, shepherds at that time, they weren't like lowest, lowest class but it wasn't like a great occupation. There wasn't much of a social life. When I go backpacking for a week, I smell horrible. Just ask my family when I get home or anybody that's been around me, can you imagine essentially living outdoors with the animals, which is what shepherds did in night watches to protect from bandits, to protect from thieves. They didn't get invited to a lot of dinner parties. There wasn't a lot of social life. So just the same term we used for Mary last week, they were nobodies from nowhere. And yet the angels fill the heavens 
to proclaim the birth of God incarnate to them. And the angel tells them not to be afraid, just like he said to Zachariah and Mary. Good news will cause great joy for all people today in the town of David. Same line, Luke's drawing us attention again to this. A savior's born, he's Messiah or Christ. Christos is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew Messiah. And this is why we call it Christmas. So they're given, the, the, and they give them like, this is how you're gonna find the baby. It won't be hard, they said. This is how you're gonna find it. You'll find him wrapped in claws, lying in a manger. And then, you know, the, the, the two angels turn into like a whole choir of angels that say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on whom his favor rests. Now, how, how would the shepherds have been expected to respond to something like this? They could have been like, wow, those were really weird mushrooms we ate for dinner. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But they didn't. They were inquisitive, which I really appreciate about them. They're like, let's go check this out. Just like Mary and unlike Zachariah, they believed that no word from the Lord would ever fail. Uh, these weren't idiots. They knew the scriptures. They knew the expectation of the Messiah and it fit for them. And they're like, well, let's go check this out. And it wasn't, it wasn't really difficult to find baby Jesus. There were a lot of newborns in a village as small as Bethlehem in swaddling clothes. It brings me to one of the great like, unanswered questions in all of scripture, though, what happened to the sheep? You ever think about that? I think it would be a good children's book, The Lost Sheep of Christmas. The secret arrives and they can eventually make their way to the manger or something, right? You can take that idea if you want. Anyway, this is where my mind goes when I'm writing servants. Here's a picture of a famous painting called Adoration of the Shepherds. I really like this. That kind of maybe brings the moment alive when these dirty, smelly shepherds. And I think Jesus was just out there, easy to find. They just roll right up on Jesus. They're like, oh my goodness. So we read these stories, and I don't know how many, maybe you're, you're new to church, and if you are, welcome. We're so glad you're here. A lot of us, I suspect, have been to a lot of Christmas Eve services and, and heard Luke 2 a lot. And I think we get so used to it, almost desensitized to it, that we fail to see the dramatic disconnect. And the disconnect would be this, and it would be true for the first century readers, and I really think true for us as well. We see the heavens filled with heavenly hosts proclaiming that God has put on flesh and come, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all has come and entered our time and space as a human. And then we see that same King of kings, our expectation of it, if that's true, there's gonna be this huge show, pomp and ceremony. And the disconnect is, we find this king of kings, creator of all, being held by a 14-year-old peasant little girl in, in the living room of a small home in a small village in Palestine. That's the disconnect that we should feel. At the same time, uh, Luke told us we're in the time of Caesar Augustus. Caesar uh, ruled, Augustus ruled from 31 BC to AD 14. Uh, Caesar Augustus and a lot of the Caesars believed they were gods and demanded worship. So we see this from inscriptions all over that we find in the Roman Empire. And Caesar definitely did. And Caesar's coming as Caesar was hailed, the exact words that we find in other places, as good news for everyone. Very similar words that the angels used. Caesar believed that he was a savior of the people. And Caesar had the, the mightiest military on the face of the earth. Tons of pomp and ceremony, tons of power. Whatever Caesar did, he wrote about it on monuments and rocks and inscriptions and left them all over the Roman Empire for people to see and read. That's what we expect. 
someone powerful and famous that's ruling the world to act like that. And then we have this disconnect when we see the angels describe the king of kings and tell the shepherds to look for a baby lying in a feeding trough. It's a disconnect. It's a great reversal Luke wants to draw our attention to. Now, I think that we still can feel that or should feel that. On uh, July 22nd, 2013, this has been a while, a global event occurred. Prince George was born. You guys know who Prince George is? Son of Prince William and Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge. What's so special about Prince George is that one day Prince George will be King George. So this was really, really big news. If you remember back in the day, it wasn't a normal birth. It was a St. Mary's Hospital in London. The entire place was locked down. There was police. There was military. They, they, they searched the entire place. They like, had like a whole floor to themselves. And, and after the baby was born, um, a 62-gun salute happened in London and in places around the world. Uh, the, the Buckingham Palace, uh, uh, the customary announcement was made outside of Buckingham Palace. Trafalgar Square, which is really beautiful and has those fountains, they turned them blue for a boy. And then gifts started pouring in, and congrats started. President Obama called, and Twitter blew up, and, and people are writing sonnets and musical pieces on behalf of this baby. And it was the, the, there's a group that, that looks at branding, and this is a truth, this is crazy. They, they look at the strongest baby brands, who's got the best marketing for a baby in the world. And I think that, uh, that Jay-Z and Beyonce's uh, blue, daughter, Blue Ivy, had the leading brand, and this child just skyrocketed. Over it. And so they, made, they said that in baby brands, this is going to be the most famous baby that's ever been born. So there's this kind of verbiage going on. And there's this huge disconnect. When we come to the text of Luke 2, and we see clearly a more famous baby, a more important birth, and yet this, there's no announcements. Right? There's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a teenage girl holding baby Jesus, placing Jesus in a feeding trough in a very simple home. The only people on the face of the earth that know about the arrival are Joseph and Mary and, and the shepherds. That's it. I mean, there's no announcements. There's no fame. There's no pomp and ceremony. It's meant to be a deep, deep disconnect. If I were, if I, if I were God and I were decided to come, I would plan it in such a way that it would be like the Super Bowl halftime show. It would be something like that. Like, look at this. This is the most incredible thing ever. Good thing I'm not God. First impressions matter. First impressions matter. We know that. We know that how we're wired as humans. And this is our first impression of God. So what, what does this first impression tell us? When we look at the Christmas story and we step back, and let's not be too familiar with it, and we say, what, what does this Christmas story, this, this arrival of God on earth, tell us about God, and I don't know if there's a more important thing for us to determine is what we think about God, who God is. If we get it wrong, it's disastrous. So what do we learn about God? I think three things landed with me. One, we talked about last week, that God is humble. And I, I called, if you remember last week, I probably offended a lot of you, but I called Mary a low life. Do you remember that? And what I meant is that that's the word humble. In, in Latin, in Hebrew, in Greek, the word humble just means low or to go low. So we see Mary embodying this, and did Mary teach her son this? Absolutely. We, we, we discussed how, how humility can refer to both circumstances and mindset. 
And we see this in God. We see the circumstances being humble. We're in a very small little village, a very small little house. They don't even have the guest room in that house. They're in common living space. We've got a feeding trough. We've got a, a young peasant girl and a, and a blue collar dad. And the only people that know they're there are these dirty, smelly shepherds. It's a very humble scene. But we also know as Jesus grew that Jesus had a humble mindset. Jesus is described as being gentle and humble in heart. On Christmas Eve, if you were here, we looked at that great early first century hymn from Philippians 2. And it talks about the humility of Jesus. The church would sing about this after his resurrection. That was the key characteristic that defined him. And, and uh, 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 Philippians 2 says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. And here's the remarkable thing. The earliest followers of Jesus listened to that and embodied that. I've been reading some stuff recently from scholars that are not Christians, making the case that, that in the first century, humility was not a virtue. Humility was seen as shameful. To go low was seen as shameful. You were meant to go high. There's this thing that they had called the wall crown. And in a military uh, victory, you'd often be attacking a walled city. And the soldier that made it up on top of the wall first invading the city got the wall crown. It was all in that culture about going up, up, up the ladder. That's to be celebrated. Anybody who had a lowly, humble origin, something was wrong with them. They were ostracized. And to have a lowly mindset to go lower was literally simply unheard of in the first century until Jesus, until the way of Jesus. Now we think about it as a virtue. And the followers of Jesus changed the world in that way, that they begin to take a lower mindset and begin to choose to lower themselves. Not only that, they chose to care for people who were in a lowly state. So women, they celebrated women and they, they raised women up to positions of leadership. They, uh, babies left out on trash heaps to die. They would rescue them and create orphanages. People who were sick, they created hospitals. People who had no places to stay, they created hostels. They were constantly opening up their homes. They had places called Jesus rooms in each home for anybody that would come and need a home. Uh, they would go into cities that were ravaged by disease and everyone else is leaving. They would enter and care for the sick. In this way, they changed the world because they embodied the humility they saw that first Christmas and lived out by their Lord. So humility is one thing. And I think as we, as we see that as Jesus followers, our mission statement here is to follow Jesus and share his love. Again, I challenged you and myself last week with this. I'm gonna challenge you again. We have a million and one opportunities every day to go higher or go lower. What does that look like for you? What did that look like for you this last week as we try to model Mary's life? What does it look like for you now? And how do we as a church, as we're looking around our city that's in desperate need right now, are we the type of church that's gonna go high and we wanna hang out with all the cool popular people and be really hip and all that? Or are we gonna be like Jesus in the earliest followers of Jesus and go low? Go into the places that no one's caring about that type of person, whoever that type of person is. And we're gonna be that body of Christ. That's the challenge as we see that attribute on Christmas in our creator. Second attribute I see is, is courage. G.K. Testerton said that, that Christmas uh, added courage to the attributes of the creator. So we can read the Old Testament and we can see lots of attributes of God. God talks about attributes and that's very meaningful. But it's not really until Christmas 
that we see God's courage on full display. This is how the dictionary defines courage, the ability to do something you know is difficult or dangerous. In the Latin, the root of the Latin word courage is the word for heart. Courage is with heart. The courage of Christmas is God entering the world as a human baby. I, I heard this, uh, the, this funny story once about a, a young boy is playing this game. He's like five years old with, with his mom, the can you guess game. And they would give a, a line of description and the other person had to guess what they were describing. And the little boy got a big smile on his face and he's like, I got one. His mom's like, okay, go ahead. And he's like, a mammal who does magic. And his mom's like, I, I don't know. And she's guessing and guessing, no, 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 no. And then he gets a real big grin. He's like, Jesus. And you think of God as a mammal. God entering time and space, entering the frail flesh of humanity, entering the womb of a young girl at a time that one third of babies didn't make it out of the first year. Literally being fully dependent on a 14 year old peasant girl for life. I mean, you talk about courage. God, God's the type of God that sees the burning house and doesn't go the other way, but says, we're going in. We're going in, and why? For, for us. Luke, we'll get to this. This is one of my favorite chapters in Luke, Luke 15. It'll be a while, but Jesus is trying to explain to the religious leaders who God is, and they don't get it. They've lost their way. And so Jesus gives three stories, another well-known section of Luke, and, and, and he says, like, there, there's a lost coin, there's a story about that, and there's a lost sheep, and there's a story about that, and there's a lost son, and there's a story about that. All the stories are saying the same thing. Something was lost that was very valuable. A character in the story would do literally everything to find the thing that was lost. And when the lost thing was found, there was great rejoicing. And Jesus is simply that, that's God. That's the heart of God. And we are the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. I had a friend once tell me a story. Uh, he, had, he had an opportunity to be in 9-11 right after it all happened, like a day or two as a pastor, I got called in uh, to the scene. And he said it was like apocalypse. It was, you know, we were seeing it, most of us, unless you were there, we're seeing it on our TV screens, and it was horrific. But the air was toxic. There was, remember all that? There was all kind of smoke. There were still buildings falling every day. Tons and tons and tons of missing people. So imagine the families of those missing people. There was, communication was rough. And so everybody got on planes, just those families. Everybody else is trying to get out of New York. All the families are trying to get in because they haven't heard anything from these missing people. And they're thinking the worst, but hoping the best. And he said it was like an apocalyptic scene. He said, you'd be walking up and down the seats. And he said, there's rubble everywhere and there's smoke and there's just distress and medical crews everywhere. And he said, you'd walk up and down the street. You would see people holding big signs with the picture of their loved one saying, have you seen this person? He said, it was just heartbreaking. But he said, those people were not going to stop until they found the person they love. And I'm like, that's God. That's, that's the heart of God for me and for you. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he was, uh, he was one of our presidents, and he gave his most famous speech in 1910. And you may have heard this quote before. It's, it's a pretty famous quote, but I thought of it as I was writing the sermon. I want to read it to you. He says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, but who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, 
who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither, who know, who neither know victory nor defeat. Nelson Mandela has used this quote. Uh, I guess Miley Cyrus has it tattooed on her arm somewhere, which is like it's a broad array of people who are compelled by this quote that is essentially talking about courage. And I thought when I read that quote, I was like, Jesus is the ultimate man in the arena. God looked at the burning building of our world and says, I'm going in. The last thing we learned from Christmas is that God is approachable. And this would have been a big shock to the first century Jewish audience who had a conception of God that God was unapproachable. And maybe that's a conception you hold today in your heart, that there's barriers between you and God that you would have to get through to get to God. And that's understandable with a Hebrew mindset of God reading the Hebrew scriptures because God shows up in a burning bush and then at the top of a mountain and only Moses can go and then he leads the people of Israel by a cloud by day and a fire by night and then the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and then the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there's always divisions because God is holy and the people are not. That's the, the quandary. That's the issue. So there is an aspect where God is unapproachable. And then we have Christmas. And God becomes fully approachable. Can you imagine uh, when, when, uh, when Prince George was born, if you wanted to go try to like hold Prince George and like you just had, were really compelled by the royals and that was like your jam and you were really excited and you just bum rushed the hospital, what would happen? It wouldn't go well for you. I, I, uh, I got invited to a Blazer game the other night. I like to go whenever I can, go Blazers. And I was shocked. My friend was super generous. Our, our tickets were on the fourth row. I'd never been that close. They're really large dudes from the fourth row. And so I could, I could hear the huddles. Like, I'm right there. What do you think, how, how do you think it would have gone for me if I would, it was 10 feet, if I would have just busted out of my seat, ran up to the blazer huddle and put my arms around Dame and CJ and be like, what's the play? What's the play? You know, because what else was going on, and I'd never noticed this before, there's a line of very large gentlemen wearing gray suits. How do you think that would have gone for me? <laughs> really, in our culture, anybody famous, it, it, I mean, you can't get to them. They're unapproachable. They're inaccessible. And I think some of, that, some of us carry that baggage into our relationship with God. Maybe there's something today with you that maybe you once thought God was approachable and God loved you and God came after you, but now this has happened or this has happened or this weird image of God has creeped into your relationship and God has become unapproachable to you. That's not true. Jesus, I mean, forever was telling his disciples who tried to act like bodyguards. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody's tried to get to Jesus and they're trying like, he's busy, he's busy. And she's like, let the kids come to me. Let, let the woman who has that reputation come to me. Let the man who has that reputation come to me. Let the, the religious zealots come to me and let the Gentiles come to me and let everyone come to me. That was his main thing is come. And that's what I love about the, the manger scenes, even though I kind of destroyed the idea of a manger scene. It's close enough, close enough. When I look at it on Christmas, and maybe it's Christmas Eve and everything's quieted down and everybody's in bed and there's just that manger scene illuminated and there's Jesus at the center, it's just open. It's just come. 
And I think that's my heart for all of us today who carry a lot of baggage in our relationship with God. What, you know, what we think about God determines how we live, essentially. And I would challenge us to look at this Christmas story this morning and maybe we think of a God who's haughty and on high and he's just ruling from his throne above. Glory to God in the highest. And as I said a few weeks ago, it's more like glory to God in the lowest. Or maybe you think it's a God that's just like, peace out, I'm done with you people. This is a mess. You guys are a mess. I'm out. Maybe that's how you think of God. Christmas story corrects that. We've got a God who's hurtling into our midst, hurtling into the burning house. Or maybe you do think that you're so unapproachable that you could never enter into a relationship with God because of this and this and this and this. And the Christmas story absolutely destroys that. And I ask you to enter into this well-known story and have it transform how you view God and how you view yourself. Because first impressions matter. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this story. We've become, I think, maybe overly familiar with it. And it's lost its depth of impact. I'm convinced when the first century world heard this story that they struggled with it because it didn't fit with how they pictured someone who's high and mighty and in charge, that it actually was a great reversal of that. But it introduced this idea into our lives and our world and hopefully our churches that I don't want us to forget of a God who goes low, of a God who has such heart and courage, and a God who says to anyone and everyone, come. And God, may that permeate our relationship with you. May that correct things about our relationship with you. And may that shape who we are as a church for your glory. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We'll see you next week.